in short, if someone is talking about passion in the sense of love or, or joy, we can say, yes, God is full of love, God is full of joy. But we would want to take out that element of passion that involves being affected in some way that so, so that one is either now damaged or one is now finally fulfilled after having not been fulfilled before because God never is deprived of something nor does he have to acquire something good in order to finally find fulfillment. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host, And I am really looking forward to our conversation today, uh, in large part because it touches on an aspect of the doctrine of God that I think Christians find counterintuitive, but it's an aspect of the doctrine of God that actually, believe it or not, is quite essential to not just orthodoxy, but to many of the Reformation and Reformed confessions of the past, and that is impassibility. Perhaps impassibility is one of those uh, one of those notions that you've really struggled with. Maybe you've been listening to Credo for some time, and you have been tracking with some of our discussion of classical theism. But when it comes to impassibility, you struggle. Uh, in so many ways, impassibility is so counterintuitive to uh, the way we use language today. Uh, so many of our modern assumptions and even postmodern assumptions about Uh, what a person is or how we understand a nature. And oftentimes when you look at modern theology, well, impassibility is not taken seriously at all. But you've also noticed perhaps that impassibility was not just affirmed, but actually uh, defended and considered quite important uh, to an orthodox doctrine of God. Uh, I can't help but think for example, of the Westminster Confession, and of course, the London Baptist Confession, uh, so many others. But these two in particular, when they speak of the doctrine of God, they are quite specific to say God is without passions. Now, of course, we listeners will be familiar. Those who have listened to the Credo podcast on simplicity, for example, will be familiar with language that says God is without parts. But what does it mean exactly to say God is without passions? And what, not just why is impassibility important, but how should impassibility be understood, especially when we turn that corner to describe the incarnation? Well, I am so excited to have on the Credo podcast Stephen Doobie. Uh, To talk about this very difficult issue, Stephen is Associate Professor of Theology at Phoenix Seminary. You may know him from some of his books, uh, such as Divine Simplicity, A Dogmatic Account. One of my favorite books that he's written is called God in Himself, Scripture, Metaphysics, and the Task of Theology. And more recently, he has published a book with Baker Academic called Jesus and the God of Classical Theism, 
Biblical Christology, and Light of the Doctrine of God. Steve, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. I think the best place for us to start, Steve, is perhaps there's so many ways we could come at this issue of impassibility, but maybe we need to uh, avoid just jumping right into it and just ask a more basic, uh, even historical question. And it's this, why is it the case that when we look at so many of uh, the Protestant scholastics, for example, uh, those who came just on the heels of the Reformation, why is it that they were so specific to not just mention impassibility, but to actually say that without impassibility, our doctrine of God uh, suffers in in many serious ways? Yeah, I think it's important to to bear in mind, we could we could think about impassibility as an implication of uh, immutability. We could talk through how immutability is very important. Um, we can also talk about impassibility in its own right as well. Um, and in the book, Jesus and the God of Classical Theism, I tried to get uh, get specific on what is a passion, what does impassibility actually signify. And I've tried to articulate the point that when we call God impassable, we are really saying that God is above being harmed or uh, deprived of something that, that is included in his well-being. God is above being made weary by the bad things that happen in this world. And um, it's important to, to get clarity on that, to think what true things about God, but also it's important to have clarity on that because it, it matters for the spiritual life. It matters for us to be able to confess our God is not harmed or damaged in any way. He's not deprived of something. So he's not struggling to, to make it through the day. He's not struggling to be able to help us. And in spite of all the bad things that happen, God is still a God with fullness of joy. And he will invite us to enter into that joy. He does that beginning now, but also especially in uh, the fullness of life that we have to come when Christ returns. Now, you used a word there, passion or passions, that mm-hmm. uh, is so foreign, uh, at least in my experience. I Actually, it wasn't that long ago, the church where I'm an elder, some of us elders preached on some of these important attributes of God, such as God's aseity, God's immu- mm-hmm. immutability, but we also, I had the opportunity to also preach a sermon on impassibility, which mm-hmm. I discovered is one of the most difficult uh, <laughs> tasks because uh, it's so counterintuitive to, say, the 21st mm-hmm. century Christian. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. also counterintuitive because even when we look at modern theology in the last hundred years, for example, well, impassibility has fallen on hard times and some have been quite critical of impassibility. This word passions, maybe we should start there because uh, mm-hmm. some of our listeners are hearing that word and, and perhaps immediately they will think, well, what do you mean God does not have passions? So what is a passion exactly? Yeah, I think it's helpful to distinguish between how we sometimes use that word today in a colloquial way and how that word was used in more technical ways in the past. So as we use the word right now, passion could be something like simply love or concern for something or excitement about something, commitment to something. 
And when earlier Christian authors say that God is without passions, they are not at all denying the love of God or the commitment to God, a commitment that God has to his promises or, or God's um, delight in the well-being of his people or anything like that. They're not denying that. They're talking about passion in a more technical sense. And in the book, I tried to dive into this by looking at authors like Aristotle, John of Damascus, mm. Thomas Aquinas, and really tried to emphasize that passion in this earlier, more technical sense has to do with being affected in a particular way by something so that one is now lacking something that one needs for one's well-being. So that, that, that there's something that's now wrong and, and whoever it is that's undergone passion is now out of sync with how they are supposed to be. Mm. And I think once Christians get a little bit more clarity on what passion, how, how the word passion is being used in that regard, it begins to make more sense why we would not want to attribute something like that literally to God, mm. because God is not bent out of shape, so to speak, by things that creatures do. God's not harmed by what we do. We harm each other by our sin, but while God does not approve of our sin or the bad things that that, that his creatures do, God, strictly speaking, is not injured or brought low by those things that happen. Mm. So I, I find it helpful to get, to get uh, very specific on what passion means in this regard and to uh, to try to distinguish that from how we often use the phrase today. So, so in short, if someone is talking about passion in the sense of love or, or joy, we can say, yes, God is full of love. God is full of joy. But we would want to take out that element of passion that involves being affected in some way that, so, so that one is either now damaged or one is now finally fulfilled after having not been fulfilled before mm-hmm. because God never is deprived of something, nor does he have to acquire something good in order to finally find fulfillment. You know, the way you're describing it uh, is so helpful, because, especially what you just said there, because it sounds like what you're saying is we want to protect God from any type of notion that would say he's incomplete and, and thereby mm-hmm. imperfect. And maybe we could even go further here because you mentioned a second ago, how impassibility is such a corollary to immutability. And even biblically, I mean, Mm -hmm. if if one of our listeners is asking, well, how do you get there biblically? Uh, This is uh, a really important next step, right? Because immutability is something that's so explicit in scripture, but impassibility is is not all that unrelated. So Steve, talk to us for a minute about that a bit more, because when mm-hmm. we are describing passions in terms of ourselves, it seems to assume something is incomplete. Uh, maybe we could mm-hmm. even use uh, the language of, say, the scholastics, that there is potency uh, at play here. Mm-hmm. And why? I guess the question is this, why then does that uh, leave us in a state of uh, insufficiency? And and why then would that be actually contrary to God? Yeah, yeah. In the case of human beings, we have have unrealized potential, um, both in the sense that we may not yet have arrived at our end, the goal for our existence, and also in the sense that we may be 
idle. We may not yet be actively occupied with the good things that we're supposed to be actively occupied with using our intellect and our will and our, our power to act. Um, so in those respects, creatures, including human beings in particular, we, we are not fully actualized. But when we talk about God, it's important to remember God doesn't have to go outside of himself in order to acquire the goal of his own existence. God's own being, God's own goodness is God's chief end, if you want to put it that way. Mm. So God is God ultimately loves and rejoices in his own goodness. And the doctrine of the Trinity opens that up for us more by allowing us to think about how that involves the Father, for example, delighting in the Son as his perfect image. God has always been fulfilled in himself, and God has always been actively occupied in knowing and rejoicing in himself, in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is no unrealized potential in God. Um, this is why uh, theologians have historically said God is pure act. He, he is in possession of himself as his own end, and he is also always actively occupied in knowing and rejoicing in himself. Now, I do think we can think about that from Scripture. We can think about God's goodness being that which ultimately satisfies, including that which is ultimately satisfying for God. We could talk about immutability as, a, as that is attested in Scripture. And we could also, of course, talk about impassibility. I think both as an implication of aseity and immutability, and also as something that, that is attested in Scripture. You, you alluded to the question of whether it has a scriptural basis, and if it's okay, I'd be happy to to point to that a little bit. Yes, please. Um, I think I think that while it may seem like impassibility would be removed from scriptural exegesis, it's actually the case that we do have a witness to impassibility in scripture. Mm-hmm. One of the passages that I bring up in the book is Acts fourteen fifteen, where Paul and Barnabas have to tell people not to worship them, to worship the true God instead. And one of the things that they say is, we are men, homoeopathes, of like passions with you. The logic being, look, if we are beings that undergo passions like you all, you shouldn't worship us. And that implies the true God who ought to be worshipped is not someone who is subject to passions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could go on from there. I, I've made comments on Romans one twenty three, where God is called the incorruptible God. And that doesn't just mean free from moral darkness or moral corruption it actually has to do with freedom from loss of fulfillment or loss of well-being. If you think through how Paul uses the language of corruption in Romans 8, where creation is subject to bondage and decay and all of that sort of thing. And then finally, I think it's also worth highlighting what Hebrews does with the suffering of the Son. In Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, the Son has to take on flesh and blood in order to become like us, to suffer while being tempted and to uh, become a merciful and faithful high priest. How does he become a merciful high priest? Well, as God, he already was merciful, but this is the first time that he himself undergoes suffering. And in that sense, he's equipped as a merciful high priest. So he mm-hmm. is, he is one who suffers, uh, distinctly in his humanity and was not previously suffering in his divinity. You know, Acts 14 is such a fascinating uh, case of this, and I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned it, because here you have a, one of the most 
I, it's a wild in, uh, scenario, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, here yeah. you have Paul and Barnabas, and they, uh, if I remember right, I think they have healed an individual, and they are in Lystra, and mm-hmm. as a result of this miracle, uh, those who are watching are not just in awe, but they they start to interpret the event, saying the gods themselves, you know, the, the gods have come down to us and they, they've come down yeah. to us in the likeness of men. And then yeah. uh, it gets it gets crazier still because they look at Barnabas and they say, oh, this must be Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, Paul is standing there. Oh, oh I can't help. Uh, I, I can't help but uh, throw this in there, too. Right. Uh, not only are they calling Barnabas Zeus. But the priest of Zeus starts to starts to to go and grab uh, the oxen and walk <laughs> them through the gates, and and he's essentially saying to the crowds, uh, we, "We have to make a sacrifice. Uh, mm. This is Zeus who's come down to us as a man." And you know, as anyone might imagine, Paul is standing there, just. <laughs> I mean, he's ready to just tear his clothes. <laughs> he's so upset, yeah. so shocked. But yet, you know, the yeah. the response of Paul is so telling. I, I often t- tell my students with Acts 14 in particular, you know, we might imagine Paul responding in any number of ways. But yeah. his instinct, and he, of course, he's going to do this in Acts 17 as well with the philosophers in Athens. But his instinct, of course, is to go to that creator-creature distinction and say, mm. no, we we are men of like passions like you. And, and the assumption yeah. seems to be, well, then the true God, the true God cannot be, um, yeah. cannot be like us. Is yeah. th- I mean, this, I, I guess this is one of the reasons why when we come to impassibility, uh, you know, sometimes people will say, well, it just has no biblical basis. Uh, this is sometimes the I'm sure you've heard that objection before. Mm-hmm. Um, it brings up another issue, though, doesn't it? Because, I mean, just even in in the brief overview of Scripture you just gave, uh, it seems that the objection itself says something about our the way we are using language, right? Maybe even mm-hmm. the assumptions that we have about language. So let's let's talk about this for a minute, because. I, Historically, when we look at how the great tradition and those who inherited uh, their doctrine, when we look at the way they articulate impassibility, they do so with a certain assumption that we are operating in a in a world, we are using language, and, and even our thought process, all of this is wrapped in what we might call analogical predication. Steve, t- mm-hmm. talk to us for a minute about what's analogy has to do with not just impassibility, but the way we even read the language of Scripture. Yeah, I think it's it's helpful to, to use the term analogy, talk through what that means, and then also to, to use the term metaphor and talk through what that means as well. So I would say whenever we talk about God, when we're, when we're speaking the truth about God, we are using analogical language where we are using language in an analogical way in order to express what's true about God. 
And by that, we mean that we are using words like wisdom, love, righteousness. Uh, we are using words in a sense that is distinct from the sense in which we apply them to creatures, but also still has uh, something similar to the sense in which we apply those words to creatures. In the first part of the Summa Theologiae Aquinas, question 13 talks through this a little bit. One of the key things that he says is we just have to remember that in every case, when we attribute something to God, let's say it is wisdom, we are speaking of a wisdom that is, first of all, infinite, and then also not a quality added to God's essence, but rather an aspect of God's essence itself. So at least in those two ways, or I should say maybe those two ways give us a start for thinking about this. At least in those two ways, we have to bear in mind that the sense in which we apply something like wisdom or love to God is going to be somewhat distinct from the sense in which we would apply those words to creatures. Now, I think within our analogical use of language, we can say sometimes we use words literally when we, when we attribute them to God, and then sometimes we use words metaphorically when we attribute them to God. A literal use of a word means that it is retaining its ordinary signification and it's not being borrowed to signify something unusual. So when we use words like wisdom and goodness and love and attribute them to God, we're using them in a literal way, um, even if it's in an analogical way at the same time. But when we see other things attributed to God in scripture, that's where metaphorical use of language occurs, like, for example, in Genesis 6, when God looks out at uh, the evil and the violence in the earth and um, expresses regret and grief about creating humanity. In, in a case like that, those words, regret or repentance and grief, they are not applied literally to God. They're applied metaphorically to God. How would we know that they're being applied metaphorically to God? Is that because we're smuggling in uh, unhelpful philosophical presuppositions or something like that. Uh, it's a question worth asking, but I think the key point is we have to look at the whole canon of scripture and what that teaches us about God. And long story short, I think that if we do that, we would arrive at the conclusion that the predicates, uh, repentance, grief are not applied to God literally in the sense that uh, with repentance, for example, God does not acquire new knowledge or uh, have to reorient his will to what is good after having oriented it toward something that was not good with the predicate grief. Strictly speaking, when someone is grieved, they are harmed in some way. It's not just that they care about something or someone. They have been harmed. They have been deprived of their well-being. Mm. If we look at the whole canon of scripture, being deprived of well-being is not something that actually fits with what God is like. So the canon presses us to think about what those predicates do mean in a place like Genesis 6. And theologians typically have said it has to do with the way that God acts. These things don't have to do with a change in God's own being or well-being, but a, a change in the way that God, uh, or a change that God brings about in the world. So with repentance, God acts as a repentant human being would do in the sense that he performs new works or produces new works. He was, he was permitting the evil to prevail in the world before the flood. Now he's going to uh, change the situation. And with grief there, um, as an aggrieved human person would withdraw fellowship from the offending party or something along those lines, 
So God is not giving his approval or giving his consolation to those who are persisting in evil. So instead of God having to change his own being or his own counsel, he's changing the way that things work in the, or the, the way that things are happening in the world. That's a little window, I think, into uh, how metaphorical language works in, in exegesis and the doctrine of God. And Steve, if we were to also press this further and take something like the scriptural language of oh. anger, for example, yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that, you know, many of our listeners, when they come to the Genesis account, or what, maybe when they come to First uh, Samuel 15, mm-hmm. the Lord expresses relent, then yeah. actually they, they know enough to say, well, yeah, but doesn't he later then, you know, there's, there's further uh, clarification here as to what he really means. Yeah. But they may struggle more when Scripture is just constantly using the language that the Lord is angry. How yeah. does how does this language then fit with what you're saying? Yeah, I think it's helpful to to try to think carefully about what anger actually means. And I think if we if we really try to get specific about anger in human scenarios, we're talking about a situation in which someone has been harmed by another and desires or hopes to avenge wrongdoing or some or something like that. That would be what I take to be a, a, a typical look at what anger means. And I think what we need to bear in mind when we apply that to God is, okay, something does not apply to, in God's case, but something here does still apply in God's case. So unlike a human being who is angered, God is not God's not been harmed by something or deprived of something that he needs. But what does apply in God's case here is still that he disdains or despises the evil that he sees and still wills to punish wrongdoing. And of course, that takes place either on the cross for those who are in Christ or or in eternal punishment in hell for those who do not repent. So there is still something that applies to God disdain of evil and sin and and a will to punish wrongdoing. The only thing that we are plucking out, so to speak, is just the aspect of being harmed by the wrongdoing that has been done. And I think, I mean, at least in my case, I, I think for most Christians, they can pretty easily realize, oh yeah, if I think more carefully about what anger usually involves, and I think about what is true of God, I would need to clarify what we do and don't mean here. So in other words, I think that once these things are explained a little bit more carefully, Christians can grab hold of it and, and understand it and see that it actually is beneficial. I I find, you know, it's sometimes easy for those who are reconnecting with earlier accounts of God, where things like immutability, impassibility are championed. It's easy sometimes to communicate about that in something like a, I don't know, in a way that would maybe prioritize shock value. You know, you get this sure. point across that makes it sound like um, <laughs> you, you just, like the average Christian, you have no idea what it means when you, when you talk about God being angry or something like yeah. that. I think actually, if we just, if we just patiently work through the material, at least I have found both in, in academic settings and in church settings, Christians can, they can get this stuff. I yeah. think you're right to use at first the word counterintuitive, but then a little bit more patient, walk, patiently, you know, a little bit more work patiently walking through the meaning of these things. I think it actually does end up 
connecting with the theological instincts of the average Christian. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Steve, I, I could not agree with you more. In fact, uh, I mentioned uh, how I preached in passability not long ago. And of course I teach it mm-hmm. in the classroom oh. as well. And I've had the same experience. I, I, I sometimes wonder if we don't give uh, Christians enough credit <laughs> mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. yeah, certainly there is that impulse out there where, especially if, if we have just been taught a very modern approach to the doctrine of God, where impassibility is is seen as uh, absolutely contrary to a God who could be personal or in covenant, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, even as we work through the biblical texts, whether uh, it's First Samuel 15, whether it's Acts 14 – whether it's Hebrews, like you mentioned a minute ago, uh, so often uh, when we actually stop to reflect on, well, what does it mean for us to have passions? And of, of course, if we have an understanding of the creator-creature distinction, uh, we, we have to be really careful then what, what we do and do not mean when talking about God. Now, I think one of the, the big barriers to those who are trying to understand impassibility and uh, the God of classical theism is, is you've, the language you've used, is that uh, when they come to the incarnation, or, or perhaps when they just come to the, the New Testament, the New Testament's focus so often is on the incarnation, the salvation that is there for us in Christ. And they see, uh, not just in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, we think of Isaiah's suffering servant, for example. They see a Christ who is suffering. And for some listeners, that that may be difficult because, well, they just learn that an impassable God does not is not vulnerable in his divinity, is not suffering, he's not uh, incomplete. There's no loss, there's no imperfection. So maybe before we even get into Christology, Steve, we could just talk about, uh, and I'd love to hear from you personally, like what steps do you take initially to just set the scene for impassibility when approaching the incarnation? Yeah, I think it's important to bear a few things in mind. I think it's it's helpful to bear in mind that scripture doesn't begin with the incarnation. So there are things that we learn about God in Old Testament scripture that we ought to carry with us as we are considering who Christ is and the way in which he reveals God or reveals the Father to us. So it's not as if the incarnation is our only basis for having some knowledge of God. And then when we come to the incarnation itself as a, as a source of knowledge of God, and we're certainly right to do that in light of places like John's prologue, where, you know, the only son of the Father has finally come to enable us to see God. When we do come to the incarnation, it's important to bear in mind that Jesus, in being both fully divine and fully human, he does not end up confusing the two natures that he has. And I think that that's a very basic point in Christology that anyone would learn when they when they begin to study the person and work of Christ. Jesus is divine. He's human. It is a theological error to try to mix together his divinity and his humanity. But I actually think we need to make sure that we bring that point with us in contemporary discussions of Christology because it is easily, it's easily forgotten. I think there's sometimes an unspoken presupposition that when we get to a question like impassibility and incarnation, maybe we need to make sure that the divinity and humanity of Christ are really 
like one another or assimilated to one another as if he couldn't possibly truly suffer in his humanity if he were not also suffering in his divinity. And that's, that's, that's a, a presupposition that needs to be challenged. We do not need to try to make the divinity and humanity of Jesus just like one another. The, the scandal of the incarnation actually is that this divine person, without changing anything about his divinity, has taken on human flesh, taken on a human nature that in fact is radically unlike his divinity that has the capacity for not knowing something or has the capacity for being harmed and undergoing loss and all of that. So I think I would start there, just re-emphasizing the need to not blend the two natures of Christ together and actually the need to do full justice to the incarnation and the cross by highlighting that his, Jesus' flesh is not like his divinity. Those are some initial starting points yeah. anyway. Yeah. I mean, one of the most uh, famous, one of the most important paragraphs, really, in the history of the church is the definition of Chalcedon. Here mm-hmm. we have, uh, I mean, maybe some of our listeners are familiar with Nicaea and the Nicene yeah. Creed in the fourth century, but it's not surprising that on the heels of clarifying the doctrine of the Trinity, of course, there uh, rises to the surface certain Christological challenges, even heresies that that really motivate, uh, galvanize um, our church fathers Mm -hmm. to gather together and to think very hard about how, what language do we use to carefully distinguish between uh, the two natures of Christ, but also at the same time, uh, we don't want to compromise the, the unity of his person. You know, there's that one line, if I can just read it for a minute here, there's that one line that is, is just so crucial. In fact, you, Steve, you, you mentioned it uh, even in some of the language you used a minute ago, because it, the definition, it, it starts off saying, well, he's of the same essence as the Father, according to his deity, and same, same one is of the same essence uh, with us, according to his humanity. But then it, it, mm-hmm. it goes on a little bit later, and it says uh, he is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, and only begotten, who is made known in two natures, united uh, without confusion, or or some translations say uh, unconfusedly, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. without without change, without division, and without separation. But then it 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 goes back to to then focus on the distinction. The distinction between the natures is not at all destroyed because of the union, but rather the property mm-hmm. of each nature is preserved and concurs together into one person and subsistence. And so this both, uh, neither one are compromised, right? He He's not separated yeah. or divided into two persons, but at the same time, he remains one and the same son. Steve, talk to us about this definition for a minute, because especially with impassibility in the back of our minds, uh, how do we articulate what we call the hypostatic union in a way that uh, doesn't uh, take this human suffering and uh, just allow it to swallow up divinity in a way that keeps and preserves the distinction uh, of the natures. And yet, at the same time, what are we to think of the fact that, well, this is the uh, one same person of Christ yeah. who's, say, weeping at the tomb of Lazarus? 
Apostles, uh, the same one who yeah. uh, walks on water. <laughs> how, how do we articulate that? Yeah. Well, I think we do have to recognize there are going to be mysterious aspects of Christology that surpass our, our intellect. But at the same time, that is not to be used as a cop-out. It's not to be used as an excuse to avoid thinking and clarifying certain things. So it is important to, to, to utilize concepts and phrases like hypostatic union. And there, of course, we're talking about the union of the two natures of Christ and the one person of Christ. And as Calcedon rightly highlights, the divinity and the humanity, they are not divided or separated, and nor are they confused or changed. And in negating separation and division, the fathers and we also, as we take up their thinking, are really emphasizing that um, these two natures are not pulled apart and one separated to one person and another, you know, allocated to another person. That's not the case. They, they remain distinct, but they are still both in one person. And that, that I think goes some way toward helping us make some important Christological points. For example, if we say, look, the son did not suffer in his divinity, but he did suffer in his humanity. Someone might think we're really saying that some nature out there is something that the son, you know, kind of wielded like, like an inch, like just a mere instrument that he used to, to do some human things or something like that. When in fact, Calcedon, Catholic, small C Catholic Christology, it actually requires us to back up and say, no, 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 this human nature belongs to, is, is in the son just as much as his divinity is in the son. So we're not, we're not trying to say that this, the, the son's suffering doesn't really belong to him or something like that. The humanity belongs to, to the son just as much as the divinity does. So it is truly God, the son himself, who directly undergoes human suffering. And then on the other side of that, when we talk about the nature's not being confused or changed, it's actually good for us to bear in mind some of the implications that this has. For example, when the son undergoes suffering, he doesn't end up going undergoing a quasi-divine human blend of suffering, like a divine human version of suffering or something like that. He actually undergoes pure, unalloyed human suffering, mm. which we needed him to do as our elder brother. I'm using the language of Hebrews 2 at this point. We needed him to undergo genuinely human suffering as our elder brother, as our sympathetic high priest. A place like Hebrews, it just, it just doesn't invite us to think about divine suffering. It invites us to think about one who has truly become one of us, flesh and blood like us, doing the suffering that we needed, undergoing the suffering that we needed him to undergo. So I would emphasize when we have uh, an account of the person of Christ that stresses both impassibility and human passibility, we have a best of both world scenarios for our spiritual life. We have an acknowledgement of God or God the Son as someone who is indestructible, cannot be deflected from accomplishing his purposes, cannot be brought down, cannot be in any way discouraged from continuing in his love for us. And at the same time, in the son's human passability, we have someone who has been there, done that, to use a cliche, who has really undergone the weight of human suffering. So I, I think that 
this is a best of both worlds sort of thing. Mm. And it is great for the spiritual life. You know, it, it's so ironic, isn't it? Because if we reject impassibility, we, we actually don't do true justice to the human nature of Christ. And, and, and that seems to be so wrapped up in what you just said. If, if we're really going to understand this suffering in its, its true humanness, that Christ died, was crucified. Well, impassibility mm-hmm. actually pro- <laughs> proves to be really crucial uh, in order to distinguish the two natures and to explain why it is, you know, you mentioned a book like Hebrews, we could mention Paul and Philippians, why it is mm-hmm. that the incarnation is so amazing or even scandalous to a, to a degree to say yeah. that the Son of God himself humbled yeah. himself. Uh, Steve, I mean, does, I mean, we're talking about, we're even echoing some of the language of Paul here, but mm-hmm. would you say that this is even behind some of the more technical language that um, the great tradition has used when they say things like, well, there's, there's no change that occurs in the sun in the incarnation, mm-hmm. or when they say the sun, the only begotten son, the sun assumes a human nature is is there a good reason for this language? Yeah, of course. We have to we have to be able to speak about the son's incarnation in a way that confirms he did not become a different sort of god when he did that and in a way that also confirms that he really is constituted a man in undergoing this. And there are different different ways that we could appeal to technical language, you know, what we're talking not about change, but about assumption, assumption of a a nature into the unity of his person. We could talk about the son communicating his hypostasis or person to his human nature um, in such a way that he is the subject of his human nature. He is constituted a man by this human nature. In the book and and, in class, I often like to look at John 1.14 and think through even the individual words that John uses there. The word became flesh. So who is it that did this? It's not a secondary version of deity. It is the eternal logos that takes on flesh. The next word is became. Okay, so this is is different than God's broader presence, his broader omnipresence, wherein he is presence, you know, in my desk or in the tree outside or something like that, because you cannot say God is this desk or God is that tree. Um, in this case, became means he, he takes this nature into the unity of his person so that he is now the subject of it. He's the immediate subject of it. And he is constituted a man by this nature. And it's also helpful then to see what the rest of John 14 does, because in taking on flesh, it's clear that he has not lost any of his, divine glory. He remains the only son of the father, full of divine glory, grace, and truth. So you have to say John 1.14 presses us to recognize there's, there's not been any change in the divinity of the son when he takes on flesh. So it is a stark presentation of how near he is to the flesh. In fact, he is the subject of this human nature. But in doing that, it's not as if that becoming entailed any change in his divinity. Mm. So scripture presses us to think that way, and then we can use various elements of uh, earlier technical language, I think, to help us shed light on that. Mm. Steve, I want to give you the last word here um, as we close, but uh, so much of what you just said for our listeners, I mean, there's, there's so much more here we could, we could explore. And mm. 
when you're looking at not just the doctrine of God, but Christology, uh, I would just encourage you to explore uh, more of what uh, Steve has written. Uh, he goes on to uh, investigate some of the language of and hypostatic. What What is that and how does that clarify? And he even engages some of the more technical discussions between a concrete versus an abstract view of Christ's humanity. So there's, there's really... Um, so much more here we could we could explore, and I encourage our listeners to do that. But Steve, maybe I can give you the last word, because when we talk about the incarnation and impassibility, the discussion of will naturally rises to the surface. Uh, mm-hmm. We've talked about, okay, his human nature and divine nature, but how do we then articulate impassibility in a way that preserves the integrity of the one will, the one divine will of the triune God, mm-hmm. and at the same time and preserves the integrity of what you've just been saying in John 1, what, what it means for him to become, to be made flesh, to use John's language. Uh, how yeah. does the language of will, how should it be incorporated when we speak of his human nature? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, tried to unpack in chapter two of the book why it's important to confess that there's one divine will that is shared by Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. I present a few arguments for that. And it's important to bear in mind that the divine will is not subject to being harmed in a literal way, nor is it subject to fulfillment in the sense of having to acquire fulfillment. Instead, God in his perfect goodness has always, by his divine will, enjoyed and rejoiced in himself. But then when we talk about the son taking on a human nature, that human nature does include a a truly human will that is distinct from the divine will. And we want to affirm that the human nature includes a human will because frankly, <laughs> human will is something that is shared by all who are in the species of humanity. So if he didn't have a human will, Jesus would lack something of what it means to be human. And then it's within that human will that Christ both renders obedience to the Father and also undergoes suffering. So uh, located in his human will is his capacity to be either drawn to and delighted in things or uh, repulsed by things that are bad, uh, harmed by things that are bad. And even as in his human will, he never wavers from his resolution to obey the Father and to fulfill the divine plan, he's also really subject to being repulsed by the bad things that he has to undergo, like the pain of the crucifixion or the abandonment of friends and so forth. So I tried to emphasize in tactics of the book that he really does, without wavering in his obedience, he really does go through things that he despises. And I think there's a lot of rich comfort there for Christians who can reflect more on the fact that uh, without wavering, Jesus really didn't like the bad things that he had to go through. But he did those things for us. And that's an encouragement to us when, when we are suffering or when we need a reminder of the love of Christ for us. So his human will, I think, is ingredient in understanding the depth of Christ's love for us. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. 
There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.